It's good to be back. T and I had a lovely weekend in North Carolina last weekend. Um, I watched my football team play. They will go unnamed because I know I'm not in friendly territory. Uh, but uh, we celebrated my wife's birthday, and uh, it was great to be with uh, good friends up there uh, as we did that, and with kids and grandkids. Uh, but I'm glad to be back, glad to dive into this uh, section of the Gospel of Luke with you. We're continuing uh, in chapter 14, and uh, I think anytime we uh, are digging into the Gospel, we uh, want to admit that what we're trying to do is get to know Jesus and trying to get to know him uh, face-to-face as much as that's possible. Uh, this word is his word, uh, and even though he's the subject of it, he's also the author of it as we understand it, at least the ultimate author of it. Uh, As I've mentioned in the past, his face is turned toward Jerusalem uh, in this section. It's called the travel section of the Gospel of Luke, beginning back in chapter 9. He is going there to fulfill his mission, uh, what God has called him to do, uh, mainly uh, and essentially to die for his people, uh, to suffer the punishment that they deserve. Uh, The impressive miracles and compassion uh, and the impressive public teaching that was on display in the first part of the Gospel of Luke have been uh, uh, brought back uh, a little bit so they're not in the forefront. Uh, Rather, what's in the forefront of this section is his discipling of his followers, uh, the increasing tension uh, that is Uh, growing that is being experienced with the religious authorities, uh, the opposition that he's facing, and and also I think that what Jesus is showing us here, especially in this passage, is his vision for something that is much larger than first century Palestine. And so we get, you know, a bit of a glorious picture here if we will take the time to kind of step back and notice what's going on. Uh, One of my uh, favorite sources Uh, for the parables of Luke, uh, writes that Luke 14 and 15 have in them some of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. Here the unqualified offer of grace to sinners is set forth in all of its majesty, and he writes often the theological masterpiece of the parable of the prodigal son is allowed to overshadow that of the great banquet. Uh, So we're getting to the prodigal son We've already been through the Good Samaritan. We're now at the parable of the great banquet. And, uh, you know, we can kind of take a step back and say this is wild that all of this is in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that we get, uh, again, a vision that is much larger, even though as the Gospel of Luke is very earthy, very uh, feet on the ground, both feet on the ground, uh, it is also, if we have the eyes to see, uh, casting a vision Uh, for eternity. So one of the topics that is floating around in the world today is the topic of privilege. Uh, I think you know about this. Uh, You you hear a lot about uh, the notion of critical theory. We talk about, uh, you've heard about critical race theory. That's actually just one subset of a much larger entity uh, that is called critical theory, contemporary critical theory. Uh, and it impacts many, many areas, uh, sex and gender, education, economics. Uh, we even see it impacting, improbably, I would suggest, science and medicine. Um, and, and with any social movement like that, 
Um, you, you have to know that it got started by appealing to things and noticing things and recognizing things that were real and reasonable. Uh, there are things that need to be paid attention to. Uh, and, and what this kind of started with is the observation that social location is real and that it presents advantages and disadvantages. It imbues some people with privilege. I mean, that's the word that gets used. And, and I think a lot of us would, uh, uh, if we're careful, you know, would admit to a certain amount of privilege. I feel loads of privilege. I feel the privilege of being able to be here uh, and uh, be a part of Carriage Lane for a brief season in our lives. Um, but the idea of this social location, this social capital, has been around a long time. Uh, there are ways in which each one of us possesses a certain kind of social capital, uh, which is the resources to navigate life. And the reason I'm even dipping my toe in this, maybe unwisely, is to say that you could also point to a sense of spiritual capital. Uh, that there's a certain location in which you find yourself religiously, spiritually, uh, that give you the resources uh, that you need to navigate your life spiritually and maybe eternally. Maybe that's uh, what we're uh, uh, really thinking about. Now, this is something that the Apostle Paul expresses. He expresses his privilege in his spiritual and social location in Philippians chapter 3. He says, look, if anybody has anything to boast about, I have even more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had a, a religious or a spiritual location that gave him certain privileges. And he actually wrote about uh, the general benefits of being a Jew in Romans chapter 9. Do you remember that? Where he said, the Jews are in a sweet spot. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the reason I bring that up is that I think you have to understand this notion of privilege, of spiritual location, in order to understand what is going on in this passage. And what's going on in this passage is, is kind of horrific. In fact, the anger of the, uh, of the host is something that might grab your attention uh, as you lean into it. Uh, so that's what we want to look at this week and understand, you know, these folks who are sitting at this table, who are enjoying this meal, uh, are, you know, you can describe them in terms of their social location. The fact that they're sitting at a table is a little bit of an indicator uh, of their wealth, of their prosperity, of their situation in the community. Uh, but more importantly, uh, their sense of who they are spiritually their sense of their privilege are uh, putting them in the place of being incapable of recognizing Jesus when he's sitting right down at the table right in front of them. So uh, this is the same meal that Sam was preaching about last week. This is really just a, in some ways a follow-up uh, to his sermon. This is part two uh, of the sermon. 
uh, having to do with this meal to which Jesus has been invited and that he uses uh, in order to uh, instruct uh, the Pharisees, the folks who have invited him to dinner. So with that in mind, I'm going to read the passage, uh, confident in the promise that the Word of God does not return void, it always accomplishes the purposes uh, for which he sends it. So I'm going to start in verse 12. Um, He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who inclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of God. Okay, let's uh, take a look at the passage. First, what I want to do is just mention to you uh, the practical application. I'm not going to leave that to last. I'm going to put it right out front. I don't want to ignore it. Uh, It is very plain. It's right on the surface of it. Uh, And that is that critical to your discipleship, critical to your walk with Christ, critical to your living in line with the truth of the gospel, uh, is that you have an eye for the outcast. Uh, This is thrown down uh, right in front of you. This is what you have to do. This is what Jesus is telling you to do. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Galatians uh, has that juicy phrase, you know, where he, he notices that uh, Peter and the others, the other leaders, the others in the Jewish community, were not living in line with the truth of the gospel uh, because they had let the circumcision party influence them into excluding Gentiles. Uh, but this is what Jesus exemplifies. Uh, he is the one who is inviting people in. And, uh, but he even notices that this apparently harmless practice of inviting one's good friends uh, and family to parties uh, can be used in such a way that excludes the poor, that excludes the the ones who are the particular objects of God's affection. And uh, today, even today, hospitality uh, can be used as social currency 
uh, particularly with regard to the practice of reciprocation. Uh, you invite the person to a meal in your house knowing full well that you are expecting to be invited uh, back and to have that kind of exchange that takes place. And again, practically speaking, the, the point of this passage uh, would be that it must be your practice if you are a Christian whose heart has been gripped by the king and his kingdom, uh, it must be your practice that you invite to your parties and dinners those who cannot pay you back, not only financially but socially. You have to have an eye to that. That's not extraordinary Christianity. That is normal, baseline, everyday Christianity. That's what has to happen. John Newton makes a comment. You remember John Newton? He wrote Amazing Grace. He's got a glorious biography and, uh, and wrote many letters. And in writing, someone who was asking about uh, how wealth might be used, uh, he you know, goes into a long disquisition about caring for the poor. But at the end of that, one of the paragraphs, he says, one would almost think that this passage in Luke 14 was not considered to be a part of God's word. And what he observed, he said, I believe there is no one passage so generally neglected by God's own people. That's kind of an amazing thing. He's probably being hyperbolic. But if it's not the most neglected, uh, it's certainly one of the most neglected passages in the whole Bible. He says, I don't think it's unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words do not teach us that in some respects it is our duty to give preference to the poor, then I'm at a loss to understand them. Now, be careful. Uh, the poor are not to be described or defined uh, merely economically. It's not simply people who don't have a whole lot of money. Uh, the larger category is referring to those who lack resources. Again, you are to have an eye for this. Uh, not just those who are poor, crippled, blind, and lame are categories that are added here. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, the categories of the widow and the orphan are added, but you get the picture. Uh, it is folks who are uh, in a position, in a life situation in which life is difficult. Uh, those who are lonely, those who are dispossessed, those who are distressed, those who are left behind, those who are on the outskirts of what you know, we normally understand to be a full and meaningful life. Those folks are people to whom Christians have an eye. I remember teaching in a, in a Sunday school class on marriage uh, about uh, the need for families to uh, not be defined romantically but to be defined vocationally. And, and part of the result of that was that, that, that people are invited into the family rather than the family or the couple uh, becoming exclusive in their romance and exclusive in their devotion. It is interesting that the... the uh, the practice of marriage retreats is a relatively new one. Uh, and, and why is that? That's kind of an interesting question. You know, but a lot of the single people came up afterwards and said that they appreciated the emphasis. The single belong to families. They're brought in, uh, as are all kinds of other folks. So that's the practical application. Uh, go work on that. Go challenge each other. Uh, say, hey, are you doing this? When's the last time you did it? When do you plan to do it again? Inviting people into your home for a meal or a party, knowing that you will not be repaid. Now, 
The second point, and I've only got two points, although this is a long one, is to ask the question, uh, what is really going on here? And, and this is something that I could chase rabbit trails uh, all afternoon. I'll keep an eye on the clock and uh, try to get us out in a reasonable time. Uh, but it is interesting, Jesus says, uh, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just uh, if you invite people into your home who can't pay you back. Uh, that's the first mention of the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. And so it's a little bit notable if you've been reading along. And that prompts someone at the table, no doubt of pious intent, to say to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And I, I, I love to be on the hunt for beatitudes in the Bible. Uh, we often limit our understanding of beatitudes to Matthew chapter 5. But in fact, there are beatitudes all the way through, and they come, jump out and surprise you at various places. And here is one. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of background. It might sound like religious language to you, so it makes a lot of sense, and you would just nod and say amen. Uh, but something more is taking place, and Jesus uses it uh, as a way to do some teaching. So he says, on that point, I mean, Jesus would probably say amen. He would agree with that. But he says, on that point, and he, and he tells them a parable. Uh, it is one of the great parables of the Bible. And again, I, I agree with this scholar who said that we pay so much attention to the parable of the, of the prodigal um, that we tend to neglect this one. Uh, I want to look at it with two lenses. I want to look at the cultural lens and I want to look at the biblical lens and see if we can uh, arrive at something that will be helpful as a result of it. Uh, first, culturally, uh, in all of its details, um, this is remarkably uh, contemporary for Jesus' setting. It, it is in close conformity uh, to the customs uh, that were taking place in Palestine at the time. Uh, invitations are made. They are sent out, they are accepted. People accept the invitation, say, I'm glad to come uh, to the banquet that you are throwing. Um, then, with the number in mind of how many people have been accepted, food is purchased. There's not refrigerators, there's not freezers, so it has to be uh, in the moment. So just enough food is purchased, just enough food is prepared, and when it's all prepared, a second invitation goes out. The final announcement to come when the preparations are complete. So that's, that's the way that this is taking place. Uh, and what ensues are a few really outrageous items. And, and clearly here, uh, you need to understand, and, and the people who listened to Jesus would have understood instinctively, uh, that the host is being snubbed, and he is being snubbed grievously, He's being insulted. All of these had accepted the initial invitation. Sure, we'll be there. And then after the food is bought and prepared, they're saying, we're not coming. And, and it may be, and I think it likely is, that the intent of these who are not coming is to humiliate the host. We don't know what the motivation is, you know, but clearly there will be this sense of that they can stand apart and watch this uh, party that has been 
disrupted and emptied out and be able to scoff and hold it over the host. Three people are mentioned uh, specifically. It says in verse 18 that they all alike began to make excuses. Uh, But three are mentioned. One is, uh, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now again, uh, understand, put yourself in the mindset of the uh, Middle East at that time. Uh, Those who know about it say it is categorically impossible that anyone would have bought a piece of property without knowing every square inch of it in detail. Before the purchase, you buy a piece of real estate, you get it inspected beforehand. You don't buy a piece of real estate and then go have it inspected. You don't buy a field without knowing it intimately beforehand. So again, what this guy is saying is a bold-faced lie. And everybody who's listening to Jesus knows that that's the case. Secondly, the other one comes up and says, uh, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, the same rubric applies. Uh, Nobody would buy oxen without having thoroughly inspected them ahead of time. Uh, The excuse is a transparent fabrication uh, intended to insult. And lastly, and and we could have fun with this, but uh, I won't. Um, The third says, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And it's hard for us to understand, you know, the the deeply troubling uh, notion of the way that this is being presented. Uh, I will point out that this guy doesn't even ask to be excused. He just flat out says, I cannot come. And in the Middle East at that time, uh, you just didn't speak about women. You just didn't speak about wives. And and the notion that this guy would say, I've just gotten married, uh, so I can't do it. Uh, And in fact, the marriage probably wasn't all that recent because in a small community like this, you wouldn't have a wedding feast followed by this grand banquet uh, in fairly short order. So again, it's it's just an insult uh, to the host. Uh, So each of these says in effect to the host, I've got things in my life that I prefer to my relationship to you. And I'd like to put you in a bad place, and I hope that you are humiliated by this, and it seems like they're all in league to do it. Now again, Jesus' hearers would have recognized this, and they probably wonder, what's he up to? What's What's the point he's trying to make? Uh, The host is angry, uh, as he would be, Uh, but what's interesting is that rather than execute his wrath, you know, rather than, you know, reach out in some kind of uh, retribution towards those who have insulted him, uh, he responds with grace. He responds with a broader and greater invitation. He sends his servants out to invite the least likely within the city. Uh, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And and here's where I have to issue a little bit of a a retraction or a mea culpa. I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that there was a notice in the the temple precincts excluding these. Um, That's not there, I'm sorry. I'm I'm an old man and my uh, imagination gets convoluted. Um, It wasn't there. It was actually in a document that came from Qumran Uh, discovered in 1946, a document called Rules for the Congregation, uh, 
And in that document, it was explicit uh, that those who were maimed, that those who were crippled, blind, and lame were not to be, not, not permitted to the temple, but they were not to be included in the messianic feast. That they would not be in heaven. That they would not be a part of this final feast that's described in Isaiah 25. So the, 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 the host, again, this is a bit of a surprising part of the story. He's been grievously insulted. He is angry, but he responds to that by going out and inviting in those who would ordinarily have been neglected. Uh, but then it gets even better. Uh, because the servant comes back in and says, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges. So the crippled, blind, and lame are within the city. You know, you would understand them probably to be Jewish. Excluded, but being now included and brought in. To go out into the highways and hedges is probably an indication uh, that the Gentiles are being invited in. And that's really the rub. The Gentiles are being invited. It's very interesting the way the parable uh, is written. Uh, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. Uh, That's probably an indication of the fact that if you went into the highways and hedges and found people on the side of the road and said, please come, that they would feel socially obligated to say thanks ever so much. But it would be inappropriate for me uh, to take advantage of this invitation. So they have to be compelled uh, because the invitation is real. It's not merely um, a, 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 a formation. Uh, it's, it's a real invitation. He really wants them there so they have to be compelled to come in. So back to this notion of the spiritual privilege uh, that many of the Jews possessed. Um, What in the world would enable a person to spurn an invitation? I mean, how, how in the world can someone say, I resent the invitation, I resent the social position that it puts me in, and so not only am I going to turn down the invitation, I'm going to accept the, the first invitation and I'm going to turn down the second one so as to insult uh, the one who's inviting me. This is kind of what the apostle claimed, that he was a Jew of Jews, that he had studied under the best professor, you know, that he was, as to the law, blameless, that he understood his theology, (coughs) excuse me, perfectly. And And that location for him, that position for him, prompted him to think that he was doing God a favor by going out and persecuting Christians. How does that happen? How did it happen in Paul's mind? How does it happen in yours and my minds? This is the picture that Jesus is trying to paint here. Now, uh, um, secondly, I want to look at the biblical view of this thing. That's the cultural view, but here's the biblical view. There's a big idea in the Bible, and that big idea is a feast. An eschatological feast. You know that word eschatological? That's the 50-cent word of the day. 
It means the feast at the end of time. The Bible is clear that there is a linear motion in the Bible from the fall, you know, to the consummation. And that consummation is described as a feast. It's a feast in which people will be able to sit down and, if you can even imagine it, uh, be able to eat and drink the richest of fare, the absolutely best feast you've ever attended with the Lord himself. Um, We read about this in the call to worship this morning uh, from Isaiah chapter 25. You know, the precursor to it is this strange little, it's only two or three verses in Exodus 24, where Moses and Aaron and, uh, and the elders of Israel sat down and had a meal with the Lord. I mean, that's such a curious, I don't, even, I don't understand that. But in Isaiah, if you look at it carefully, and you can look at it in your bulletin, uh, the feast is universal. Isaiah had promised that when that feast is finally laid out, when this messianic feast, when this glorious messianic feast is finally laid out, it will be for all peoples, for all nations, for all faces, for all the earth. The repetition of the word all five times in those three verses tells you uh, that it's a big picture. And somehow that got forgotten. Somehow, within the people of God, within the nation of Israel, within the Jewish hierarchy and settling down and filtering down into the synagogues, uh, that had been forgotten. And and historians can actually trace, you know, between Isaiah, there were several significant documents, one of those being uh, the document from Qumran, uh, where this vision of a universal feast where the whole world is invited in, the Gentiles are invited in, all of the nations are invited in, uh, was lost. In Jesus' day, there was no expectation that there would be anyone but Jews at the Messianic feast. And not only that, of course, that the Jewish unworthy were to be excluded. Well, Jesus mentioned in chapter 13, We were there a couple of weeks ago, a banquet at which would be seated the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 29 of chapter 13 said, and people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Well, that's being described here in a little bit more detail. And and it really goes back further even to chapter 4. I've referred to that a couple of times. I I think that chapter 4 is really important for understanding the Gospel of Luke. That's where Jesus goes to the synagogue. He gives his inaugural sermon. He says, God, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Uh, You probably remember that. Uh, But if you go back to chapter 4 and read a little bit further, you find out that he is also saying, he, he gives illustrations of that, of what God has called him to do, Uh, from Israel's past, and he talks specifically about a a widow from Sidon, who's a Gentile, and Naaman the Syrian uh, being healed of his leprosy, a Syrian also being uh, outside uh, Israel. So Jesus gave as examples of the calling that God had given him, uh, God blessing non-Jews while Israel goes wanting. 
And at the time, back in Luke chapter 4, you see that this incites the members of the synagogue to wrath against Jesus. They come against him. They try to throw him off the edge of the hill. Well, the same thing just keeps recurring uh, in the gospel of Luke, and it, and it recurs here. You know, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day are basically saying, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with it. One of my favorite lyrics of Paul Simon, if that's the way it's going to be, I want to call the whole thing to a halt. Now, again, imagine the disposition, and before you heap scorn on it, you know, recognize that you and I are readily disposed in this way, you know, to set up a pattern in our own brains about how God ought to act, the way he ought to be conducting his business. Isn't this the way we often pray? Lord, I want to let you know that things are kind of messed up, and, and I'm going to inform you how you can act you know, in a way to, to clarify and clean things up. You know, the point simply is this. The point is you are being invited to a feast. You and I are being invited to a feast, and that feast is unbelievable, So we're kind of like those in the highways and hedges that have to be compelled to come in. But there are many things in our lives that we prefer to relationship with Jesus. There are excuses that we make. All the while trying to look good, we don't want to kind of disturb the status quo. But there are a lot of places in our lives saying, I, I, I can't give that up. I can't go that far. You can't understand this passage uh, while you understand your fundamental orientation towards the Lord uh, to be that uh, of uh, privilege or of entitlement. Uh, I'm, I'm sad to say that Oftentimes when I pray, uh, I'm fairly demanding, saying, God, it has to be this way. And, uh, and the Lord is pretty clear that he's uh, not interested in that kind of prayer. Uh, but Jesus is telling you in this parable that your own expertise, your own accomplishment, your own pedigree, your own honor will avail you nothing uh, in the kingdom of God. Uh, You are the beggar on the highways and hedges, uh, without hope, without God in the world, by nature an object of wrath. We know those verses. And we are invited, we are even compelled uh, to a feast that is good beyond our imagining. And, you know, and again, the question is, will you trust that? Will you trust that invitation? Um, You need to recognize yourself, all of us, need to recognize ourselves as bereft, without demands, without even a clue. Lord, what I need is you. When I was home last week, or I shouldn't call it home, it might be home someday, but when I was back in Winston-Salem last week, um, I met with an old and dear friend. I'm a little bit nervous because she might be listening, Uh, but it was a delightful meeting, and uh, she had been listening in to some of the sermons here, And, uh, and she's had a rough go of it had a rough go of it. Uh, disappointments that are profound. 
unfulfilled expectations, tragedies even, bitter tragedies that you wouldn't wish on anybody. Been a rough go. And, and, and in the middle of that, you know, there can be demands, you know, there can be yearnings, there can be the, uh, certainly the temptation to punt. The grief can overwhelm. And, and the devil is willing to take grief and turn it into guilt in a New York minute. Where you begin to wonder is, you know, has my life been lived in vain? Have I so ruined everything? That can happen. But here in this passage, what Jesus is intending to communicate, that only the unworthy thrill to the thought of being included in the kingdom. The invitation is such that it can inspire thrill. Are you kidding me? Invited? Is that even possible that I could be invited? Uh, you know, the short word of this, and I could have said this at the beginning and we could have skipped the sermon, is that you have to be humbled to gain access to this table. And it's a lifelong pursuit. Uh, it's a pursuit that needs to be reiterated again and again. You know, critical theory says you're privileged, you should be ashamed and relinquish your privilege. It advises you to despise your neighbor and to perceive every relationship as a power struggle. What a beautiful view of the world. Uh, the Bible, on the other hand, says that you are blessed and that that blessing leads to humility and generosity, and love, and joy, and peace, and all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And it leads to a glad reception of God's grace, a glad reception. A little bit of a question, I can't even believe that I have been invited to this feast. I dare not turn it down. I love Wesley's language in his hymn. How can it possibly be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? We sing it, and can it be? We ought to try to rework that. How can it possibly be that I could gain an interest uh, in the Savior's blood? So that's just really the point of the passage. You're invited to a feast. Will you attend it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need to be very careful here. Very careful. us in the New Testament interacting with Jesus, they're uh, usually uh, not disposed favorably towards him. Uh, but what a great mercy uh, that this has been inscripturated, that this has been put down by the various authors by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that it can be held up as a mirror uh, to our lives. Uh, Father, we want very much to be those who accept the invitation who run with all due haste uh, in order to attend the banquet. We want to be very much those who do not let anything impede us, who are willing to kiss goodbye everything that we have uh, in order to be a disciple of Jesus. And we ask you that you would work in us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.